Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. This is a story us millennials probably remember well. It recently is back in the spotlight because a lot of Generation Z is just discovering this case and they're like, why in the hell are these two locked up? They were victims. You guys have this all wrong. There's TikToks made by young people that are devoted to Eric and Lyle and what can we do to free them or get them another trial. Generation Z is pissed off. If you guys go on TikTok and type their names in, you're going to see a ton of videos made by teenage girls with detailed presentations of why these two shouldn't be in jail. Even some of us older folks, including myself, are forced to sit back and think about this. Did they murder their rich parents just to blow their inheritance? Or were these two boys really victims themselves? My sources are listed in the description area. I do want to warn you guys, some cases I feel are harder to talk about than others, and this is one of those. I'll be discussing sexual abuse. I'm not, nor ever have been a victim of abuse, but I know a lot of people who are, and my utmost respect and heart goes out to those folks who have gone through such traumatic events. I will present it with as little graphic details as possible, but I have to let you guys know before I get started that Eric and Lyle claim they were raped frequently by their father, sometimes on a daily basis throughout their childhood and even as adults. Eric claims his dad had sex with him just days before the murders, just to put things into perspective for you guys. I do need to follow up by saying that Jose and Kitty's family are skeptical about the sexual abuse claims, but do say that Jose was a tyrant who bullied and berated his kids. Eric and Lyle say no one knew what was going on behind the scenes except the four of them that lived in the house, the two boys and their mom and dad. This isn't a case about did they kill their parents? But instead, why did they kill their parents? This is the case of Eric and Lyle Menendez. The story takes us back to 1989. This was a big year. The Berlin Wall came down. The World Wide Web, which is commonly known as the Internet, was public. People didn't just rush to get it, though. You had to, number one, own a computer, which was something mostly reserved for people with a lot of money. You also had to know how to operate the web, so you likely had to have an electronic savvy or super smart person in your family. The first Simpson episode premiered, and I remember that day really well. Nintendo came out with the Game Boy. The top grossing movie was Batman. The most popular names were Michael and Ashley. This explains why you probably know a lot of Michael and Ashley's in their early 30s right now. Minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. A 40-hour work week would make that $536 a month. That would cover my car payment these days and no, like no other bills. And lastly, it was the year Taylor Swift and PewDiePie were born. Jose and Kitty and their two sons, Eric and Lyle, live at 722 North Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. It's a huge, gorgeous home in an upscale neighborhood, which is only five blocks from Rodeo Drive and Santa Monica Boulevard. Their house was previously owned by Prince, Elton John, and a Saudi prince. It has six bedrooms and nine bathrooms, a pool, and a tennis court. On the very warm night of August 20th, 1989, this is a Sunday, Jose and Kitty were hanging out in the family den while the boys are out. They're watching the James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. When suddenly their sons, 18-year-old Eric and 21-year-old Lyle, walk into the den holding 12-gauge Mossberg shotguns. Kitty is asleep on the couch and Jose is watching the movie but dozing out. Eric and Lyle raise the guns and fire at their parents. Jose is fired at twice and a glass door behind him shatters. 
He was hit in the right arm and the left elbow. He was then shot in the back of the head. Kitty obviously had woken up. She is screaming and trying to get away. She was shot in the right arm and the calf. She falls onto the coffee table, but manages to stand up before slipping in her blood. She was shot again in the chest and her left thigh. She still manages to try and crawl away. The boys realize they are out of ammunition, so they run back out to their car and reload. They come back in and shoot her four times in the face. She had 10 shots to the rest of her body. Before they left, they shot both parents in the knees to make it look like a mafia-type hit. Maybe the police will believe one of Jose's business associates had it arranged. We learned that the day before the killings, Eric drove out to San Diego and purchased two Mossberg shotguns. He was able to do this using a friend's ID that was left in Lyle's dorm room. After the murders, the boys drive off and dispose of the guns and the shell casings. They drive to a gas station and change out of their bloody clothes. Then they go to the movies and buy tickets for the movie Batman as their alibi. At 11.47 p.m., Eric and Lyle return home. Lyle calls 911, and unfortunately, I can't play the call for you due to copyright, but I will link it with my sources. It features Lyle crying to the operator that he and his brother came home and someone killed their parents. You can hear Eric wailing in the background. They say there's no gunman in there now, but please send the police. These murders really rocked this area of Beverly Hills. Things like this didn't happen frequently. This is a neighborhood full of millionaires. The police arrive within just a couple minutes. There's media being set up outside. You can actually watch old news clips on YouTube of the bodies coming out of the house. A detective named Les Solar is going to be leading the investigation. He arrives at the house and notices nothing was stolen. The room wasn't ransacked and their valuables were still in place and there was no sign of forced entry. Eric and Lyle are brought in for questioning, which is a completely normal procedure. They aren't considered suspects and no gunshot residue tests were done on their hands. The questioning didn't last long, mainly because Eric was so distraught and crying and wailing. We got to remember, this kid is only 18. He just graduated from Beverly Hills High School just two months before. Lyle remained calm, though. He gave the police a rundown of everything they had done that day. They started off with a late breakfast. They played tennis on the court in their backyard. They spent the afternoon shopping at the mall. They went to the movies to see License to Kill, but the line was too long, so they went to another theater and saw Batman instead. They made plans with their friend to meet after the movie at the Taste of L.A. festival happening in Santa Monica. They tell him to meet them at the Cheesecake Factory. First, they have to go home and grab Eric's fake ID so he could drink while they were out. When they got home, they discovered someone had killed their parents, so they called 911. Eric suggests that maybe the mafia was involved. After all, his dad was a powerful man who had lots of connections to lots of people. He was also a very unliked man by a lot of people. Five days after the murder, it was time for their parents' service. It's a huge service attended by a lot of people. The boys arrived an hour late and looked really uncomfortable, according to some of the attendees. Eric tried to give a eulogy but couldn't since he was crying so bad. Lyle gives a 30-minute eulogy and talked about how much they love their parents. He talked about his dad's successes and how he wanted him and his brother to be successful like he was. Two people from Jose's employer, Live Entertainment, gave eulogies, and Kitty's brother gave a eulogy as well. 
A little background on Jose and Kitty Menendez. They married in 1963. They had two boys, Lyle in 1968 and Eric in 1970. Kitty quit her teaching job to stay home with the boys. They live in New Jersey during this time period. Jose is described as being a cutthroat businessman. He did whatever he had to do to get ahead. Jose was born in Havana, Cuba, but he wasn't crazy about his heritage, almost like he was embarrassed by it. He didn't want to be thought of as a minority. The family eventually moved to Illinois, where Jose became the CEO of Hertz Rent-A-Car. He often met with O.J. Simpson, who was the face of Hertz Rental Cars when it came to advertising. He was in commercials and so on. Jose is making a ton of money, and he and his family are doing really well. But Jose is known to be very abrasive to his workers. He's just mean and ruthless. Jose takes a job offer at Live Entertainment and moves the family to Calabasas, California, which is famously known for where the Kardashian entourage would take over. They would eventually settle in Beverly Hills. These people have wealth, and Eric and Lyle have every material thing they could ever want. Kitty is a former beauty pageant queen. Her parents weren't thrilled about her marrying Jose because of his Cuban heritage. His family isn't crazy about her because they say she's just a gold digger and wants to live a lavish lifestyle and that the only reason she married Jose was for money. She struggles with depression and suicidal thoughts. She appeared like the ideal mother, but those closest to her paint a different picture. They say that she was high strung and always appeared to be under duress. A lot of that stems from her husband having multiple affairs. His affairs became a normal thing and everyone kind of knew about them. She frequently stays in bed and family and close friends say she neglected the boys even when they were older teenagers. Their mansion, although beautiful, wasn't kept tidy, and she just drank and took prescription pills, like not the normal amount for treating depression and anxiety. She was taking multiple doses more than needed. She would still get glammed up when they went out and was able to carry herself well outside of the home. Lyle is the older son, who is 21 at the time this story takes place. Lyle was one of the two brothers with the stronger personality. He was open and outgoing. He had dropped out of Princeton University because he was accused of plagiarizing another student's work. He moved across the country to be back with his family in California. Eric is the younger son. He is only 18 at the time the story takes place. Eric is the quieter, more reserved of the two sons. He spends most of his time playing tennis. Eric is like a professional-level tennis player. At one point, Eric hires a private tennis coach to work with him. You know, I thought about this, and it made me wonder if the tennis instructor he hired was Adam Hecht. Do you guys remember a while back, I covered the disappearance of a young guy named Adam Hecht? He was another rich kid from Beverly Hills who was a tennis instructor in the late 80s, and he's a few years older than Eric and Lyle. He disappeared, and people believe he left voluntarily to go live with the homeless people on Skid Row. Anyway, I just found it a coincidence that Eric hires a tennis instructor from Beverly Hills around that same time. I looked it up, and it was not the same person. Anyway, these two boys are well-educated, they are articulate, and they are charming, they're handsome, and they speak very well, and they have excellent manners. They are sweater-vest-wearing preppy kids. Where did everything go wrong? 
When they lived in Calabasas, Eric and Lyle got caught breaking into houses and stealing. I think they did this for the thrill because they get anything they want. Plus, their parents were giving them a spending allowance of $180 a month, which in today's money is $425 a month. I know my kids would be thrilled to have an allowance like that. They get caught and Eric takes the fall for it because he's a minor. If Lyle took any of the blame, it would be on his permanent record since he was over 18. They didn't get in trouble with Jose over this, though. Jose was upset with them, but not for breaking and entering. He was upset that they got caught. This family, as you can tell from photographs, appear normal and loving. Nothing out of the ordinary. But there was a whole lot going on, according to Lyle and Eric. And let's discuss. These two were driven by their father. No one can walk on them. They are his sons who are supposed to be powerful and intimidating like he was. When Lyle was young, like 12 years old, his hair started getting really thin on top. His parents bought him a toupee and made him wear it. In fact, Eric didn't even know that his brother Lyle was wearing a toupee until many years later. We learned that Jose often referred to Eric as a faggot. I'm sorry I had to even use that word. It's not part of my vocabulary, but he often said how Eric was a faggot and a pussy. I'm talking at the dinner table in front of guests. He would tell them both they're worthless. They're not worthy of being a Menendez. The family all believe that Eric is gay. In fact, Kitty gave Eric a deadline to find a girlfriend. Jose was mean to Kitty, often embarrassing her in public. He had affairs with lots of women. He believed no one was more superior than him. He would often verbally abuse Kitty. He didn't care if it was in the middle of a restaurant. He even put her on his lap and beat her with a belt. Jose got off on making people embarrassed or feel like shit. He even told people his wife had cancer as a joke just to see her reaction. He was well known to this high-class escort service. He would often order escorts and have sex with them. He requested younger girls and was upset to learn that they didn't employ minors. Now, Kitty isn't so great herself. She often would berate the kids and tell them she wished they were never born. They ruined her life. She says she would be working and earning money like Jose if these two stupid boys weren't born. She is described as not having a motherly bone in her body. She didn't feel any love towards the boys and let them know that all the time. She let them basically fend for themselves and rely on each other. Yes, the kids were well-dressed and had plenty of food and amenities, but that's it. I can't wrap my mind around it. It's almost like she had a stranger's kids living in her house. They didn't have many adults who really gave a shit about them, but they did have Jose's sister, their Aunt Marta, who often hugged the boys and always told them she loved them. But at the same time, you have others who describe Eric as being extremely close to his mother, and she at times even did his homework for him. They saw her driving her sons back and forth to tennis practice and being involved. The LA Times reported in an article from 1990 that some describe Jose as being an overbearing father who wanted his sons to be perfect, but not capable of violence towards them. He made them answer Jeopardy questions during dinner, and they would get bitched at if, he, if they didn't get the answer right. The boys' tennis coaches say Jose often yelled at them from the sidelines, but he was no worse than any other parents were. The LA Times also reported that not one person ever saw Jose strike either of the boys. 
I've also read in a different LA Times article that Kitty would go on these rages where she would break dishes and Jose would lock the boys in their bedroom for hours. That was info that came from one of their cousins who testified that she stayed part of the summer at their house. Jose and Kitty often played porn in the living room. They would just have porn streaming during dinner. The boys were like 10 and 13 and there's porn all over the house. Even when their friends came over, Jose liked to watch everyone's reactions and see guests squirm in their seats. Jose was most obsessed with Lyle. He would make him memorize passages in self-help books, but he would black out with a marker the parts that he didn't agree with. He controlled everything that Lyle did. If Lyle talked back or stood up for himself, Jose would punch him in the face. Lyle got a job in high school working at a restaurant to earn extra money. But when he got his $33 paycheck, he smirked and told his girlfriend, I could find that going through my laundry basket. He quit after just a few days. Lyle wants to be like his dad. He wants to be successful and often talked about his dad to his friends. He had a friend over one day and they're eating dinner. The friend gets up to get a drink and Lyle told him not to get up. It was the maid's job to get refills. Eric was like the disposable son. His expectations weren't as high as Lyle's. I found it odd that Lyle drove an Alfa Romeo and Eric drove a Ford Escort. Each car was purchased by the parents. There's a big difference between an Alfa Romeo and a new Ford Escort. Not that anything is wrong with a Ford Escort, but that's a huge price difference. Maybe Eric just prefer preferred a more economy car. I don't know. Eric was a beast on the tennis court. He was the best around. One coach said Jose came out on the court one day during instruction and told Eric, no, no, do it like this. This coach was pretty upset and decided to quit teaching Eric since his dad was going to come out and tell him to do it a different way. There's really no hope with this one here. So we've got this vision of Jose and Kitty the way that Eric and Lyle say they are, which are horrible people and horrible parents. And then we've got the way the public sees the parents, which are overbearing mom and dad, but not abusive, but just trying to drive their kids to success. They are also described as eating dinner together every night at 7.30 p.m. Dinner was like the debriefing session where they would all discuss how their day was. People thought this was a really good thing because Beverly Hills parents often leave their kids on their own in the evening so they can go to parties and movie screenings and so on. This appeared to be a tight, close-knit family. Lyle was once asked to describe a happy memory from his childhood he said he used to see his mom rescue birds from the yard and nurse them back to health. He also said he came home one day and they had gotten a puppy and his dad was out in the yard playing with the dog and Lyle joined in. Let's get into the aftermath of the killings. The boys stay in a hotel because their house is a mess and they tell people they're worried about the mob coming after them next. They arrive at one Beverly Hills hotel and request a two-bedroom suite, but were unhappy with the rooms that were available, so they go to a different hotel. They are unsure at this point what their inheritance is going to be. They know the estate is around $14 million, but Jose had mentioned recently cutting them out of the will. To put that into perspective for you, $14 million in 1989 is equivalent to $33 million in to th today in 2022. So they aren't sure what's going to happen. They did receive a lump sum payment almost right away for the amount of $650,000. 
They felt free and spent a lot of money. This spending spree ends up being a key piece of evidence for the prosecution. This spree was held against them in court. Eric hires a tennis instructor who would train him for 10 hours a day. His fee was $60,000. Eric is spending money on flights to compete in tennis matches, even overseas matches. Four days after the killings, Lyle bought a Rolex. I've read two different versions of this. I heard Lyle bought a Rolex and Eric bought a Rolex. And then I heard Lyle bought one, but Eric didn't want one. So I'm going to go with the most reliable source, which stated Lyle bought the Rolex and Eric didn't want one. Eric bought a Jeep Wrangler. Lyle bought a Porsche 911 Carrera. Lyle put down $300,000 as a deposit for a chicken restaurant that he renamed Mr. Buffalo's. The way he did that was putting up a loan against the estate. Eric put a $40,000 payment towards a rock concert, which ultimately fell through and he never got his money back. They bought clothes and accessories, ski trips to Aspen, a private limousine, a vacation to Cancun. You guys see where I'm going with this. These boys are blowing through money like it's nothing. Lyle invests in business ventures just like his father did. None really took off, though, since most of the people he hired were his friends who are young and inexperienced. Lyle also racked up $90,000 on his father's American Express that belonged to his employer. By the end of 1989, Eric and Lyle had spent over a million dollars. The police, especially lead detective Zoller, were, getting to, were beginning to suspect something isn't right with these boys. The way they are emotionless about their parents' deaths, the way they're blowing through money like it's nothing. They interviewed one of Eric's friends, and his friend tells them, you guys need to look into Kitty's computer. They learned a computer expert was called to the house and paid a generous amount of money to go onto Kitty's computer and wipe some files clean. There was a file called Will that was erased. It is believed that Jose and Kitty had a new will drawn up that excluded the boys, and that's what the file is. Anyway, the computer expert was hired by Lyle and Eric. He comes to the house just a few days after the killings. He erases the file. He doesn't care. He's getting paid. He has no stake in this case whatsoever. Detective Zoller interviews Eric and tells him he hears the brothers aren't getting along because Lyle is blowing through money so fast. Eric says Lyle is acting just like his dad with starting businesses and just being a hard ass. When the interview is over, Eric is shaken. He was fine during the interview, but now that he's left, he's scared. He calls his therapist up, a man named Dr. Jerome Ozeal. He had been the boy's therapist for a long time. He was hired under the premise that anything they said in therapy would be reported back to their parents. This was Jose's rule. He says he needs to meet with him as soon as possible. He needed someone to talk to and he couldn't get a hold of his brother Lyle, so his therapist is the next best thing. You're going to hear a lot more about Dr. Ozeal coming up. Eric and Dr. Ozeal walked around Beverly Hills. He tells the doctor he's been having suicidal thoughts recently. When they get back near the office, Eric leans up against a parking meter. He looks at Dr. Ozeal and says, We did it. We killed our parents. They go inside and sit down, and Eric starts spilling the beans everywhere. He tells Dr. Ozeal that they thought they had gotten away with a perfect murder because they were so careful to clean up all the shell casings. They knew police were going to find their fingerprints all over this house, but it was okay because they lived in the house. Their fingerprints are supposed to be all over the furniture. 
He tells them about getting rid of the guns and changing their clothes. When asked why they did it, he says because his dad was so dominating and hard on them. Dr. Ozeal tells Eric to call Lyle and tell him to get to the office right away. Eric calls Lyle, and he is furious that Eric was talking to Dr. Ozeal. He says, I'm your brother. You should have came to me instead. Dr. Ozeal makes it known that he knows now that the boys killed their parents. Eric confessed everything to me. Lyle says their father would be proud of them for committing such a well-thought-out murder, a perfect, effective plan. Jose loved perfectionism. Dr. Ozeal doesn't go to police, but instead records more sessions. He meets, he meets with them again in a few days, and Dr. Ozeal is getting the impression that Lyle wants to kill him for what he knows. One instance included when Lyle said goodbye to him, he firmly gripped his hand while shaking it and said, good luck. Now Dr. Ozeal fears his life is in danger. He could have broken the patient-doctor confidentiality agreement now that he felt threatened, but he didn't. Eric confessed his crime to a friend over dinner at a restaurant, but he did it in a way that wouldn't implicate him. He said things like, if we shot our parents, we would have shot dad in the head first and then mom, and then we would go out to the car and we would reload. He was wording it very carefully. This friend goes to police who tells him, you're going to wear a wire. The friend meets up again for dinner with Eric, and Eric backtracks and said he was lying and he and Lyle didn't kill their parents. So this confession is no good and doesn't hold up. The police were skeptics of this friend's claims anyway. A huge break would come in March of 1990. The police receive a phone call from a woman named Judalon Smith. She calls police and she says that she was the secret lover of Dr. Ozeal and that she has some info that is huge. Judalon is very attractive and constantly throwing herself at Dr. Ozeal. She hangs around the office in between patients. They meet up for sex all the time. Now, he has a wife and daughters at home. This woman he was secretly sleeping with could have cost him everything and he was very careful to only identify her as a patient. Well, on October 31st, 1989, Dr. Ozeal called her and said he wanted her to hang out in the waiting room during his session with Eric and Lyle. He feared his life was in danger, and if they knew he had a patient in the waiting room, they likely wouldn't kill him. She overheard the conversations that he was having with these boys and heard their confession. All of it's on tape, too. So why months later would she go to police suddenly with this info? So... She wanted to be with Dr. Ozeal permanently. She wanted him all for herself, and she is basically blackmailing him with the info that she has that Eric and Lyle confessed. Dr. Ozeal moves this woman into his family's home. He tells his wife she is a patient who needs extra care, and spending a couple weeks in their home would be acceptable and part of her therapy. This is going to go over well. Now, either the wife truly believes him or she's the dumbest person alive or she just doesn't care. But she allows this beautiful house guest to stay with them. One day when he was gone, Judalon tells his wife and young daughters that Dr. Ozeal was her lover and she's been with him many times. His wife confronts him about this and he throws Judalon out. Now, Judalon blackmails him again and says, if you don't leave your wife, I'm going to police. He tells her, if you do that, Eric and Lyle will kill you, you bitch. But she does it anyway. 
Judelon would eventually file two lawsuits against Dr. Ozil for brainwashing her and manipulating her and making her take prescription drugs. This is like a trial within a trial. Now there's this whole other drama going on between their therapist and his mistress. He ended up countersuing her for blackmail and other things. She ultimately walked away with $400,000 of his money, though. The police have a search warrant for these tapes, and they raid Dr. Ozil's office. They listen to all 17 of them and hear Eric and Lyle confess everything. All the puzzle pieces they were trying to find fit neatly together. Arrest warrants are issued for both brothers, the charges being two counts of suspicion of murder. They were going to go in the house and kick the doors in and arrest the boys, but Jose's mother was living there at the time, and she's elderly, and they were afraid this could cause her to have a heart attack. So they wait around the neighborhood for them to leave. Lyle is at their Beverly Hills home with some of his friends. It's a beautiful afternoon, and they decide to go to Cheesecake Factory for lunch. He and two of his friends hop in Eric's Jeep and start the car and start driving down the street. When suddenly cops pull in from all directions and block him from going anywhere. Lyle takes off his Rolex and hands it to his friend in the passenger seat. He steps out of the Jeep and then is tackled and placed under arrest and taken to the Los Angeles County Jail. Eric is much further away. Eric is actually out of the country. He's in Israel for a tennis tournament. Eric's friend Noel gets in touch with him and informs him that Lyle was arrested and now they need you to leave this tennis match and come back to California. Eric starts crying uncontrollably after he learns that his brother was arrested. Eric's attorney at the time made a really dumb move and this was <laughs> any defense will tell you any defense lawyer will tell you that what should have happened is that they should have made a deal that Eric would come back to the country and would turn himself in under the condition the death penalty would be taken off the table. But he didn't. He just came back on his own accord. The police are waiting at the airport to arrest him. These two are going to stay at the L.A. County Jail for a very long time, like years while they await their trial and sentencing. Once in June of 1994, Eric is sitting in a cell. He hears a familiar deep voice being escorted past him. It's dark, though, and he can't see who this inmate is. And then he hears one of the guards say, can you sign my son's football? Thanks, Juice. Eric says from the next cell, Mr. Simpson, is that you? OJ says, yeah, it's me. OJ had gotten arrested earlier that day for the murders of his wife and her friend. Eric says, you ate dinner at my house when I was little. My dad was Jose Menendez, the CEO of Hertz Rental Cars. OJ Simpson said he remembered little Eric. They talked for a moment through the walls before both falling asleep. Eric hires a lawyer by the name of Leslie Abramson. She is a high-profile attorney who stands at 4 foot 11 inches tall, but she is a ball of fire. Leslie is a big opponent of the death penalty and very rarely loses cases. Lyle hires attorney Jill Lansing. The common thing is that both of these women are older women who are mothers, which is just what they need. They work together to see what they can do to get these boys off or at least spare them from getting the death penalty. They hire other female attorneys to assist with the case research and for advice. The Menendez's estate would be covering the price of these very high-powered attorneys. Leslie Abramson's attorney fee alone was $750,000. Well, this pissed off Kitty's brother, who said these two murdered their parents and now they want to use their parents' money to get them off from doing it. 
But Jose's family, which was more sympathetic to the boys, including Aunt Marta, says this is what's happening. They have been in jail for a few weeks and are brought in for their first arraignment. The judge isn't liking their smug arrogance and the way they act like they're movie stars. The judge makes it clear that they need to understand they can both receive the death penalty. They say they understand and they both enter a not guilty plea. Leslie Abramson is dealing with the media almost daily. Sometimes they camp outside her home. Her and her husband were in the process of adopting a newborn and the birth mom was set to give birth any time. She meets with Lyle's lawyer and both agree on one thing. Something is missing. Something huge. There's like a huge chunk of these murders that's missing and no one knows what that is. Leslie thinks about it and realizes that the boys didn't likely kill for money. They had everything they wanted. Lyle had, you know, he's had a credit card since he was old enough to swipe it. They likely didn't kill their parents because they were strict. Everyone knows they're strict. Everyone knows they berate the boys often. Lots of Beverly Hills parents have high expectations for their kids. What is missing here? She wants to get to the bottom of it. Eric reveals that he was sexually abused by his father from the time he was a small child up until his death. He had sexual intercourse with his father hundreds, if not thousands of times. Lyle was sexually abused as well, but only until he was eight years old and then dad moved on to Eric. Lyle was sexually abused by his mother when he was around 11 and it continued for a few years. She didn't touch him. Instead, she made him touch her. When it finally stopped, she got really angry with him and was very mean and hard on him. Lyle had no idea the abuse was still continuing to happen to Eric until a time not long before the murders took place. Lyle and his mom had a big fight and she knocked Lyle's toupee off of his head. Eric saw the whole thing happen and was stunned that his brother was nearly bald. He had never seen Lyle so vulnerable. Lyle runs off with his toupee in his hand and Eric tries to talk to him and Lyle is crying and telling him to go away. Eric knows, again, this is a very vulnerable moment for Lyle, so he's going to hit him with what's ha been happening to him. He tells Lyle, the stuff with dad is still going on. Lyle confronts Jose, who tells him to mind his business. All their lives, they were told that if they told anybody, anyone about what he does to them, he would kill them. That's the reason neither boy ever told anyone about it. There was a time when little Eric asked his cousin if his dad touched him, and the cousin said no. Eric said how lucky he was. Some of Eric's childhood medical records were released. In one instance, Eric was taken to the emergency room when he was seven years old due to an injury to the back of his throat. The doctors assumed it was an object. He's a kid. Kids do dumb things. Eric doesn't remember this trip to the emergency room, but it's in his medical records, so we know that it happened. The defense has Dr. Ann Burgess on the stand. She is known for her work with rape survivors and children who have gone through abuse. Dr. Ann states this was likely caused by our oral copulation, but prosecution claims this was likely caused by a popsicle stick. Eric stated his parents never took him to the hospital due to any of his injuries he received from the sexual abuse. He has no recollection of being at the hospital for this particular injury. He said he had a sore back of his throat lots of times from that particular act, though. We learned in his court testimony that Eric often put lemon in his foods, like he was pouring lemon juice on every meal. 
He was doing this to dull his taste buds, and I won't get into why, but he said he thought it would help his taste buds eventually go away. It didn't work as well as he thought it would, though. We learned that as Eric got older, the acts became way more aggressive. There was more that the brothers detail in their testimonies. Some of it is extremely stomach-turning and incredibly difficult to listen to. All of these were captured by Court TV, and you can find their testimonies on YouTube. According to a book written about the brothers, the abuse claims didn't come out until six months after their arrest. First, they said they were at the movies. Then they said they were abused, and then they changed it to they thought their parents were going to kill them. The prosecution doesn't believe these boys were molested at all. Their theory is that Eric is gay and used some of his experiences with men to describe the abuse from his father. That is how he knew what to say to describe the abuse. Eric and Lyle's cousins, who are around the same age as them, well, they testified that they knew something was going on between the two boys and Jose when they were younger, but they were so young themselves they didn't realize what it was. Recently, Eric had gotten accepted into UCLA. He told his parents he wanted to live on campus. Well, his dad refused to pay for it unless he was home four nights a week. This caused a big argument. Eric felt he would continue to be assaulted the rest of his life and felt there was no way out. Lyle threatens to expose Jose for who he is and what he did to him and has been doing to Eric for years. Jose tells him again, I will kill you. Eric and Lyle argue that there was no way out. They felt their lives were in, in immediate danger. If they go to police, their dad was so rich and powerful, he could make these charges go away and have the boys killed. Earlier in the day, the boys had gotten into a big fight with their parents. They believed they were going to die, especially because they had rifles in the master bedroom. Eric and Lyle said that the doors to the den were closed when they got home, and that was something they'd never done before. The defense argues that the boys were not in imminent danger because when they walked in with their shotguns, mom and dad were asleep in front of the TV. I watched a lot of the trial, and Judge Stanley Weisberg was really hard on Leslie Abramson. He constantly shot her down and made a lot of snarky remarks. Many people comment how awful his treatment to her was. The whole trial was captured and aired live on Court TV. It was gripping the nation, and millions were tuned in every day to see these two wealthy young men and wondering where it all could have went wrong. The first trial was declared a mistrial, and the second trial would have to take place. The second trial was not as glitzy, and there were no cameras allowed in the, court, in the courtroom. There were people that say Jose and Kitty were loving parents, and others that say that they were awful. It almost seems like there's two different versions of them. This isn't a question of, did Lyle and Eric kill their parents? Of course they did. They'll tell you they did it. The question for the jury is, did they feel their lives were in imminent danger? The prosecution wants you to believe they were just spoiled rich kids who wanted their parents' money. The jury ultimately decided that no, their lives were not in imminent danger. They are both found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. On July 2nd, 1996, they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. During the penalty phase, there was a big issue when it was revealed that attorney Leslie Abramson had told one of their witnesses that he could edit his own notes. It's revealed, and Leslie was in some hot water for this, but it didn't lead to 
too much, like she wasn't disbarred or anything. She did have to step down from the trial and couldn't give the closing argument. Lyle's new lawyer had to do it for both boys, which was difficult for everyone to wrap their mind around because closing arguments were Leslie's best quality. That was always her moment to shine. The boys are loaded into separate vans and taken away by the California Department of Corrections. One van followed the other. They came to a crossroads and one van turned right and the other kept going straight. It was at that moment they knew they would be taken to different prisons. These are high-profile inmates who get special protections, at least at first. For 22 years, the boys didn't see each other. It wouldn't be until 2018 they decide the boys can be reunited again. They see each other and run up and hug each other, and they both cry for a long time. They are currently still housed together and see each, see each other every day. Lyle runs a support group for inmates who are sexual assault survivors. Lyle is 54 and Eric is 51 years old. They have spent way more time of their lives in prison than the 18 and 21 years they had before they were arrested. They both say, yes, prison sucks, but at least they aren't being abused by their parents. Lyle married Anna Erickson, who was a model in 1996. They had a quick prison wedding, and Eric attended via phone so he could be the best man. They talked about having a child together, but the state of California doesn't allow conjugal visits. They were married until 2001, when Anna found out he was cheating on her by writing letters to another woman. Eric married a woman named Tammy in 1999. They have been married for the last 23 years. She and her daughter drive to see him every week, and her daughter even refers to him as her dad. Lyle married another woman named Rebecca in 2003, and they have been married for the last 19 years. Lyle actually has a Facebook page ran by his wife. He has no access to the internet, but he wanted a page for sexual abuse survivors to turn to. There is a message from Lyle on the page, though, that he asked her to post. These are his words. It reads, Hello, if you are new to this page, we welcome you. Please read the following message from Lyle. Quote, I thank my family for helping me with this page. I don't have internet access, so this site depends on them. I've been told that setting up this page will open me up to ridicule and criticism. That's probably true, but it's something I'm already used to. It's very hard to accept that sexual assault can be the punchline of jokes or the subject of ridicule, but it has occurred to me and to many others. If I am mocked for this page, the shame of that belongs on the mocker and not on me or anyone who shares their story here. There is quite simply nothing funny about child rape or other abuse. The purpose is to provide a safe place for people to talk about their similar experiences and find comfort in others who have suffered in silence in the same way. Those of us who have suffered abuse understand the healing power of sharing our experiences. This page's platform is to oppose all forms of child abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse perpetrated by anyone, including but not limited to parents, a teacher, a coach, a priest, and the government. We also oppose all forms of domestic violence and sexual assault, end quote. There's been so many times people have written to President Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, asking for a presidential pardon of these two brothers. The president can only pardon federal crimes, not state crimes, so there's not much that they can do. 
There is a miniseries called Law & Order True Crime that portrays the whole case. I watched it. It's really good. Edie Falco was even nominated for an award for her portrayal of Leslie Abramson. I definitely recommend watching it. You can find it on the Tubi app. That's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining in. Take care and much love to you all.